Well, good morning. Uh, we are continuing our semester. It's week three of biblical themes. So we've been looking at uh, this idea that the Bible is one story. Though written in 66 books, the Bible is one story that ultimately culminates in God's Son, Jesus Christ, which that, that reality that the Bible is one story that's ultimately about Jesus is what is best for us. The Bible is not the roadmap to our lives. The Bible is not ultimately about us. The Bible is ultimately about God's Son, Jesus. And when we see that, we will see ourselves rightly and we will see him as glorious. And so one of the hopes as we keep looking at these major themes, these major red threads of the scripture is that we would see that reality and our hearts would be filled with worship and therefore we would see ourselves in the proper place. Another reason we're doing it is uh, you hear the the phrase often, don't miss the forest for the trees. Uh, And I think that's very, very helpful when it comes to the Bible because we are often just looking at individual verses, right? You open the Bible, read a verse, paint it on your wall at home, right? Go to bed. Right? So we're, we're very familiar with the trees of the Bible, and often we will miss the forest. And so the idea of looking at big themes like covenant or like food, meals that Lee talked about last week, uh, or a kingdom that we talked about in the first week, is to, to zoom out and see the forest of the scriptures so that when we look at the individual trees, we know where they Fit. So this is week one. We're looking at covenant today. It's another massive, massive theme in the scriptures. We'll, we'll talk about. You'll, we'll see a lot of differences in in the types of themes. We saw kingdom is a huge one. It's more like kind of the structure of the scriptures that the other themes hang on. Uh, and then we look at different ones like food, which is less like kingdom, more just like a pattern you see throughout the scriptures. And covenant today is another big one, like the structure that everything hangs on. Thomas Schreiner. Uh, a professor at Southern Seminary says this, we can't grasp how the scriptures fit together if we lack clarity about the covenants of God that God made with his people. That's a big statement, big statement. We can't grasp how the scriptures fit together if we lack clarity about the covenants God made with his people. If we don't understand covenant, it's going to be very difficult to understand the scriptures. So we're going to look at it, hopefully, to bring that understanding today. But two things before we start. Number one, this kind of like kingdom will be a 10,000 foot flyover. When we originally taught covenant five years ago, something like that, we did it over eight weeks. Uh, So if you want a deeper dive, you can go back and listen to those or have, again, resources at the end if you want to get into it. And then second thing, uh, what I'm going to focus on today is the story of the covenants, how the theme unfolds. I will not be spending almost any time or zero time on debates with how the covenants fit together, okay? Dispensationalism, covenantalism, things like that. I'll spend zero time. We've got hour-long teachings on that. You can go back and listen to Jonathan Edwards actually said, there's nothing more debated in all of Christianity than how the covenants fit together, but I'll leave those debates for someone else. We're going to spend time looking at the story of this. And I think it's vital to understand covenant for three reasons. One, to understand what God is doing in the Bible. We must understand covenants to understand what God is doing in the Bible. Covenants in the scriptures is how God unfolds his plan of redemption. They all are in line with one another, each one getting a bit narrower and narrower and more specific and more specific, kind of like a Russian nesting doll situation. That's the first. Understand what is God actually doing in the scriptures, particularly in his son Jesus. 
Secondly, to understand uh, how our lives fit as people of the new covenant. Uh, Every person in this room has two different types of clothes on right now, therefore breaking the Mosaic covenant. So if we're still under that, we're all in sin, right? Anybody had bacon recently? All in sin. If, though, we're people of the new covenant, as the New Testament screams over and over and over again, something has shifted, right? So we need to understand where we fit in this story of the covenants to understand how we are to live before a holy God. And then thirdly, most importantly, to see God's character. To understand covenants is to see God's character over and over and over and over and over again. We will see God is the one who initiates covenant relationship with his people. Not once will we see God far off and a man say, hey God, will you enter into relationship? Not once. Every single time we will see man far off and God coming down and entering into relationship. On top of that, we'll see his mercy and his steadfast love in covenants, how covenants are initiated as God's response to sin. Instead of wiping us off the face of the earth, as he could very justly do, he comes down and initiates a covenant relationship with his people. So as we see this, we won't just see what he's doing. We'll see the character of the God initiating the covenant. So let's get into it. What is a covenant? Probably helpful to start by giving some definitions. I've got a couple there for you, one from Thomas Schreiner. A covenant is a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to each other. Okay, so so a covenant is a relationship. Two people come together in relationship, and that relationship has with it promises and obligations. Another definition from a guy named Sam Amadi is a pastor, professor. A covenant is a special set of profit promises that define a relationship between two people. With that comes privileges and responsibilities. So just kind of a rephrased uh, version of Schreiner's definition. So all of you would be familiar with this covenant, marriage. Two parties come together, and at weddings we do what? We have vows. I love you. I will do this. The other person, I love you. I will do this. And we have a sign of the covenant to say, I'm in covenant with someone. Sorry, ladies, taken, right? I'm in covenant. That's what, when I put this on every morning, I'm declaring to the world, Jared Lawson is in a covenant relationship with Claudia Lawson, right? So we're all familiar. It's the same thing that God is coming and doing with man. We see these different elements of the covenant. By the way, the entire book of Deuteronomy is a giant covenant. So we see all these elements in the book of Deuteronomy. It's reestablishing the covenant with Israel right before they're about to go into the promised land. Moses giving one final sermon before he goes and dies. So we see some of these elements. Two parties coming together, oftentimes a, 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 part, a greater party and a lesser party. So you would, this would happen with kings and vassals, things like that. Uh, to make an agreement, we would see a, a preamble. Again, we see this in Deuteronomy that kind of gives the history of, of the relationship before the covenant is established. You would have covenant stipulations, One party makes promises, the other party promises obedience. As a result, you see covenant ratification, sometimes the shedding of blood to say, how are we going to inaugurate this covenant through the shedding of blood? You see blessings and curses. If we keep this covenant, blessings will rain down. If we break this covenant, curses will rain down, especially if you have a covenant between a king and lesser people, right? If you obey me, I'll rain down blessing on you. If you don't, I'll rain down curses on you. Again, uh, when you read Deuteronomy, you'll see this. And then again, you see a sign 
of a covenant, or sometimes you see a ceremony of a covenant, a meal or something like that, okay? So again, a ring would be the sign of the marriage covenant. So not all of these uh, elements of a covenant have to be present in order for it to actually be a covenant, but that's, that's kind of the general outline that we see. Again, think of a wedding. You see uh, most of these in a wedding. So you actually see covenants all throughout the scriptures. You see, if you read Genesis, uh, Abraham and Abimelech, you see Jacob and Laban, you'll see Joshua and the Gibeonites, right, as they're going and taking the promised land, this nation calls the Gibeonites, pretends to be these poor travelers when they really just don't want to get wiped out, and they trick Joshua into a covenant relationship with them. But the main covenants of the scriptures uh, are, uh, there are six, a covenant with Adam, covenant with Noah, covenant with Abraham, covenant with the nation of Israel, covenant with David, and the new covenant, the new covenant. So that's what we're going to walk through today. So let's start with the first, the covenant of Adam, the covenant with Adam, often called the creation covenant because it happens at creation. This, uh, of those six, this is the most kind of debated, uh, if it's a covenant or not, and it's really debated because the word covenant doesn't exist in the Genesis narrative, uh, which doesn't matter because you don't need a word for the concept to be there. So think of Trinity. Trinity is nowhere in your Bible, but it's the most essential doctrine of the scriptures, right? Our Trinitarian God. Other places uh, in the scriptures will call what's happening in Genesis a covenant. Uh, In fact, the, the word covenant won't exist with the covenant with David either. So though the word isn't here, the idea is here. So we see this in Genesis 1 through 3. I didn't put those verses there because it's three chapters and it would make your notes really long. But we see these two parties come together. See the elements of the covenant. Two parties coming together, the God of the universe and these dirt people that he's made. Right? God and man are the two parties coming together. We see a greater and a lesser. By the way, every covenant with God will be with a greater and a lesser. So we see God creates man and doesn't just create him and say, you know, go off. He, he creates him and establishes a relationship with him. Which, by the way, don't blow by that fact. The essential reality of every covenant is God is establishing relationship. Don't blow by the reality that the God who said, let's there be light, wants to know man, wants to know you enters into a covenant relationship so that there can be intimate fellowship with you. Again, seeing God's character. Don't just blow by that fact of God starts it. God is initiating covenant with this man that he just scooped from the dirt. We see covenant stipulations in Genesis 2. I've got it there in your notes. Uh, Quite simply, Adam and Eve, fill the earth Subdue it. I've given you this beautiful garden. All the fruit is for you, right? There's the blessing. But here's the one thing you can't do. Eat of this tree. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's the the covenant stipulations. Obey me, and this is all yours. Disobey me, and you will surely die. And again, we don't get far in the story when Adam and Eve disobey. They choose to break the one rule that exists. And so all the blessings of the covenant are taken away from them. And in Genesis 3, 14 through 19, we see the curse of the covenant poured upon them. Women uh, filling the earth will be difficult and painful. It'll be pain and childbearing. Men subduing the earth will be difficult. Thorns are going to come out of the ground. Now, it won't be this lush garden that you were in. So they broke covenant, and therefore the 
curses were poured upon them and poured on the rest of creation. The world itself gets the curses of the broken covenant. So this, this, this first covenant with Adam is a bit unique in the sense of it's conditional. If you do this, blessing. If you do this, curses. But notice, Adam is not working to earn the covenant. So this isn't what we would think of as works righteousness. Adam has already been established in this relationship, and then it's, it's kind of a unique situation. You can stay in this relationship if you obey, but if you break it, you are uh, sent out of the garden, and we know what happens. And because it happened with Adam and Eve, it happens with all of us in the entire world that is broken as a result. So there's this broken covenant in Genesis 3, but there is also a glimmer of hope. What is God's response to this broken covenant? Genesis 3.15, this promise that one day all this brokenness will be undone. Right? Someone's going to come and re-fix everything that was just broken by Adam and Eve that's going to crush the head of the serpent. So it's not directly related to the covenant, but it shows God is not going to allow Adam's failure to forever remove his relationship with man. Okay? God is not going to allow man's sin to have the final word on his broken covenant. Right? God continues to act in mercy. So the next covenant we see, if you keep reading your Bible, things get worse and worse and worse and worse as Adam and Eve are sent out of the garden. We see our first murder in the next chapter. And then in Genesis 6, we get this summary statement on the state of the world where essentially it says, uh, man had the intention of evil always. There's never a second where he's not doing evil all the time, and that's the context which we enter into the next covenant in the scriptures, the covenant with Noah. We see it in Genesis 6. God tells, this is actually the first mention of covenant in the Bible. God tells Noah, I want to establish a covenant with you. I'm about to judge the whole world. I'm about to wipe out the whole world with just perfect wrath for their wicked ways, but I will show mercy on you. So we see him come to Noah in Genesis 6, tell him to build an ark. And then Genesis 7 and 8, we actually see that judgment and that mercy. If you pay attention to the story of what's happening in the flood, it's actually this picture of decreation. In Genesis 1, we see in God creating, he's separating the waters and the dry land. And what's happening in the flood? He's decreating. The waters are sweeping over the dry land and wiping out all the inherit or inhabitants. There And so Noah is pictured as this sort of new Adam figure. The, the, the ark lands, Noah comes out, and we see in Genesis 8 and 9, this description is very similar to creation. We see birds and plants sprouting up. We see a garden. Noah becomes a, a man of the vine and plants a garden, right? All these create this creation language. And then similarly, we see God enter into covenant so I have the big passages there. I won't read those. That's for your reference. But we see God come to Noah. And Noah is a representation of all of humanity, right, in this covenant. God promises, I'm never going to wipe out the world again. I'm never going to wipe out the world again. Which at first reading, if you notice, it just looks like God's promising, I'm just not going to flood the world again. I might earthquake the world and wipe everybody out. I might, you know, volcano the world. But in the context of what's happening here, and actually we see more descriptions in prophetic books like Jeremiah 33, what God's actually promising here is, I'm not going to wipe out all of humanity until my promised redemption. 
back in Genesis 3 is fulfilled. I'm going to keep the world from total destruction until my purposes of redemption can be realized. That's what he's promising here. So it's not a redemptive covenant, if you will. This isn't the same as Abraham or uh, uh, Israel or with David, but rather this is kind of like the context that the rest of the covenants will flow into. I won't wipe out the world. Don't worry about total annihilation and redemption is going to take place. So he promises he's not going to wipe out the world again. Notice there's no requirement for man. Even if man continues to be wicked, God's still going to keep his promise. And then the covenant sign. What's the covenant sign? That's probably the one we know the best. Rainbow. Yeah. I don't ask for audience participation much. You guys are like, does he want us to talk? A rainbow. Yeah. And literally what God is saying, he's not just like, and look at this pretty thing in the sky, and then you'll know I keep my promises. The picture there is he's putting his weapon He's racking his weapon and saying, look, I'm not touching anymore. He's putting his bow in the sky. I promised I won't destroy the world. Here's how you know you'll see my weapon hanging on the wall. Every time you see rain and think, "Uh uh-oh, you'll see my bow there, and you'll know God keeps his promises, okay? So notice, by the way, and this is something we'll see over and over and over again, the covenant comes after mercy. The covenant comes after. After God's grace, we'll see this over and over and over and over again. The covenant is not to say, okay, let's see if you can earn your way into relationship with me. God delivers Israel out of Egypt, comes through the Red Sea, destroys all their enemies, parks them in the Red Sea, or parks them in the wilderness, and says, now let's enter into a covenant after he has graciously delivered them. Don't get that order wrong, because if you do, you will totally misunderstand who God is and what he is doing. Covenant with God comes after his gracious deliverance. So we see that covenant with Noah is this kind of second Adam and this new creation. I'm not going to destroy the world until the redemption that I promised in Genesis 3 comes. And so we'll see these next few come right out of this, flowing right through it. Uh, So after, sorry, after the covenant with Noah, we see man uh, doesn't do much better. We think, oh yes, new creation, Noah is in a garden, and then what happens? He gets drunk, right? So like instant, right? In the the same way that Genesis 1 and 2, we're very excited, and then Genesis 3 is just this great buzzkill. The flood, but there's this merciful deliverance, and there's this new covenant, we're so excited, and there's rainbows everywhere, and then total rebellion with Noah, and then it keeps going. And we have the Tower of Babel, which is just this ultimate high-handed sin where man is saying, let's do this great thing, let's build this great tower so that the earth knows our name is great, not his. Total rebellion of what we are created for, yet God stays faithful to his covenant. And it's right after this Tower of Babel, this giant high-handed sin, this picture of ultimate rebellion where we get Genesis 12. And again, we see this merciful God initiating covenant with Abraham. At that time, Abram. Again, just unbelievable grace. Abraham is not looking for God. He is a moon worshiper from the country of Ur, wherever that is. He's worshiping the moon. He does not know who Yahweh is. He's not worshiping him. And God says, this guy looks faithful. I guess I'll choose him. He does not care about Yahweh, yet God comes to him and enters into relationship with him. And we see this Abrahamic covenant, the third one we see in Genesis 12, 15, and 17, all different elements of the covenant with 
narrative kind of sprinkled throughout. So the first thing we see in Genesis 12, uh, verses 1 through 3, I have this in your notes. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And then verse 3, notice this. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So covenant elements, we see the two parties. God coming to Abraham, we see the stipulations. God promises three things. You are going to have lots of kids, right? Offspring, this great nation. In fact, that gets furthered in Genesis 17 to many nations. He's going to be the father of many nations, though he's old, his wife old, and she's also barren. That's the first thing. Many offspring, Second, land. Third thing, this kind of universal blessing. Through you, all the nations are going to be blessed. Now notice, God's focus, though he's calling Abraham, is on the world. God is about restoring the garden. All the nations are going to be blessed through you. So we see those three promises And then next, in Genesis 15, we see uh, this kind of ratification ceremony of the covenant. So let's read this together. Genesis 15, 9 through 18. So here's, God's made the promises, and he's saying, let's make it official. Let's have this ceremony. Genesis 15, 9 through 18. And he said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, cow, uh, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, turtle dove, and a young pigeon, And he brought him all these things, cut them in half, and laid each half against each other. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed through the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. What in the world is happening here? So when you would make a covenant, it was often called cutting a covenant because what was normal in that day is we want to make a covenant together, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to take some animals and we're going to cut them in half and it's going to be a horrible, bloody ceremony. And we're going to take one half and put it over here and one half and put it over here and we're going to quite literally put these dead animals in a line And as we've just very violently killed them together, their blood is pooling and kind of making a path. And I would walk through the blood and I would stand in the middle and I would stomp and I would say, if I break this covenant, may I be like these animals. And then you would walk through and you would say, if I break this covenant, may I be like these animals. And so this is what's happening. God tells Abraham, Abram, go get some animals. Let's do this thing. Let's ratify this covenant. And as Abraham is cutting these animals up, he's realizing what's about to happen. And he goes to sleep, and a terror falls on him. I'm about to enter into covenant with a holy God. And Abraham is very aware. And if you've been reading the narrative about Abraham, you'd be very aware too. He is not holy. And he's about to pledge something that would cost him his life. And notice what happens in the story. God walks through the animals twice. 
and Abraham zero times. Smoking fire pot, God appears all the time in Genesis as pillar of fire or smoke. We see that in Mount Sinai. This is God passing through the animals twice saying, if I break covenant, may this happen to me. God will not break covenant. God cannot lie. And God passes through again. What's happening here? When's the next time we see a great, thick darkness cover the whole land? A couple centuries later, when God's son is on a cross, being cut because we break his covenant, yet he takes the penalty for it. We're getting ahead of ourselves, but I want you to see that. Your gracious God saying, even in your failure, I will be faithful. And even when it requires this happening, it will happen to me. It will happen to my son so that we might stay in covenant relationship with one another. So we see that covenant ratified. We see the blessings and the curses. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. And then the sign. Does anybody know the sign? of the Abrahamic covenant, it's in your notes. Anyone who hasn't looked at the notes? Circumcision, there you go. Heard it meekly said there in the back. Yeah, circumcision. So he makes this covenant with Abraham, and if you read Genesis, goodness gracious, are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob a bunch of losers. They are not impressive in any way. They're constantly rebelling. Every time they go into another nation, they tell their wife, hey, say you're my sister so they don't kill me. Right, they're constantly just... Not strong men, not protecting, yet God has chosen these people to keep his covenant, I think, in fact, I know, over and over again, to scream as loud as you can, God is the one who is awesome, we are not. (laughs) We are the weak ones, and yet he remains in covenant with us. So this covenant is made with Abraham's family. Again, the focus is always on the nations. He's going to be a father, not just of Israel, but many nations. That's the promise. They're going to get this land, which we'll see in just a second as we look at Israel. The land of Israel is meant to be a a declaration to all of the nations. This is what it looks like to be ruled by God. And nations should look in in awe at how glorious God's rule is. And then that last, most important universal blessing, through you and through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Again, very creation-like language. God's focus is on the nation. So he makes this covenant with Abraham, and then we see Abraham's offspring, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's 12 sons, and then we see this grow into this giant nation of Israel. So again, notice how these are just getting more and more and more specific, the Russian nesting dolls. I don't know if that's the right analogy. Never owned a Russian nesting doll, but more specific. Abraham, now we're going on to Abraham's family, Israel. So we see they go down into Egypt with Joseph. It's a great triumph at the end of the book of Genesis. They're in this great high-privileged position, and then the book of Exodus starts, and this great big nation is now thrown into slavery. And they cry out to God, and God hears them, and God delivers them, and God wipes out their enemies, and God draws them out to Mount Sinai and enters into the next covenant that we see, the covenant with Israel, or what's often called the Mosaic Covenant, okay, Mosaic Covenant. So 
after God has delivered them, notice again, notice the order, after God has been gracious to them, after God has delivered them, we see a covenant. We see that uh, in Exodus 19, again, Deuteronomy, the whole book of Deuteronomy is a reestablishment of this covenant. I won't read that there. Uh, But we have these two parties, again, God and Israel. God is actually on Mount Sinai, this giant dreadful cloud calling out to the people. And we see him entering into covenant, and the stipulations are God promises you will be my treasured, treasured possession there, verse 5. You'll be my treasured possession among the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be, to me, a kingdom of priests in a holy nation. Right? I'll be your God. You'll be my people. We'll enter into covenant relationship with one another. I'll dwell in your midst. There's a tabernacle that the, the, the nation of Israel would camp around that was where God, God's presence dwelt. And inside that tabernacle and later the temple is just all this beautiful garden imagery because God wants to get back to the garden where he's dwelling with man. We see uh, the ratification of the covenant, the entire sacrificial system so that God can dwell with, a holy God can dwell with sinful people. There's animals that will be sacrificed. We see that all throughout Leviticus and numbers, and then blessings and curses. If you keep my law, your crops will grow. I will wipe out your enemies. Everyone will be jealous of you. They will want to stream in and say, who is your God, so that we might worship him too. Again, Israel's meant to display to the world, this is what it looks like to have the God of gods rule over you. That will be your reality. Israel, if you obey my laws, I'll wipe out all these nations that are stronger than you, just like I did with Egypt. But if you rebel, no crops will grow. These are all summary statements. No crops will grow. You will not have victory. In fact, your enemies will defeat you, and you'll go back into exile. There'll be this undoing of the exodus So see that. If you obey, if you keep my covenant, all these blessings will be poured out on you. If you break my covenant, all these curses will be poured out on you. And then the sign of this covenant is the Sabbath. Take a day to rest and display with your lives God reigns here. Our nation is kept alive, not by our strength and our awesomeness, but because Yahweh is in control. So that's the sign of the covenant And what happens, again, just like from Genesis 1 to 2 to 3, right after this is made, Israel calls out, everything the Lord says, we will do. And it's this great triumphant time, and Moses goes up on the mountain, and it hasn't even been 40 days yet, and what's happening? On their wedding night, Israel commits adultery. We've forgotten God, make us a golden calf, Aaron, so that we can worship it. They're breaking the covenant right after it's been made. And God is merciful to them. Moses intercedes. They establish covenant, even though they just rebelled. And we'll see in just a second. It doesn't get much better after that. There's just continual rebellion. But again, the Lord stays faithful. Okay, so we see this Mosaic covenant that the entire nation of Israel was meant to be under. And then one more, just a little bit more specifics. We've got Adam... All of creation and heaven are united, right? God is dwelling with man. We, as man, are meant to live in perfect relationship with him and go flourish in his creation, make all of creation as beautiful as the garden. But Adam breaks that covenant, so there's a curse. 
But God promises, I won't destroy until redemption can come and we can get back to God perfectly dwelling with man. And that's going to happen through Abraham. He will bless all the nations. Now Israel will declare to all the nations, this is what it looks like. This is what it could look like for God to dwell with man and him to perfectly reign in our midst. And now one more specific. This covenant redemption is ultimately going to come through one man, a son of David. So you see this in 2 Samuel 7. David has just conquered kind of all of, his, all of Israel's enemies, right? The Philistines and all the ites, Amorites, Jebusites, Moabites, all the ites. This is kind of the heyday of Israel's rule. They've got this great king who's the man after God's own heart, the great giant slayer, David, the great psalm writer, David. All their enemies are put away. And David, just kind of looking back and seeing God's blessing, says, I dwell in a palace. I dwell in a house every day, yet the Lord's presence is in a tent, right, in the tabernacle, which is just a giant tent. I want to build God a house. I want to build God a temple, that his presence dwells in a glorious temple. And God comes to him after this great exclamation from David, and God comes to him and says, you want to build me a house? That's great. Solomon will do that. Thank you. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a dynasty. And you will have a son who sits on the throne and never steps off. And he will reign as king forever, and his kingdom will have no end. That is a promise. That is quite the promise from God. Comes to David and says, you'll have a son who will be king forever. Forever. We see that in 2 Samuel 7. It's both conditional and unconditional. We see this where uh, we know he's ultimately talking about Jesus, the son of David, but there's this promise that when your son rebels, I will discipline him. We see this all throughout David's line as all of David's sons rebel, but it's this promise. Again, see the narrowing. The promise of universal blessing that came from Abraham is now going to be ultimately realized through David's son. We're waiting on one deliverer who's going to bring about all these other promises. We're waiting on one king whose kingdom will bring about all these other promises. You see how it's getting more and more specific until we get to one person, David's son. And after this covenant is made, first of all, the man after God's own heart, David, rebels and breaks his family apart and breaks the kingdom. It's remade temporarily. And then we see over and over again, Solomon fails, Rehoboam fails. You are hard-pressed to find a half-heartedly good king all throughout Israel's history. Josiah, Hezekiah, We've got some, a couple of good ones in there. The majority of them don't just not keep God's law. The majority of them lead the nation away from Yahweh to worship other gods. The son promise, it's not that one, and it's not that one, it's not that one. These guys aren't just not great, they're wicked. And they're leading people away from God. Yet God stays merciful. Notice how every step of the way, and we're just repeating ourselves, God is merciful, God is faithful, man is not. Man breaks covenant. It looks like the first second that he can, Israel on their wedding night. Yet God remains faithful. So as Israel, for the majority of the Old Testament, are just in total rebellion, 
we see the prophets kind of enter the scene. And if you want to know what's really happening in the prophets, if you just read through the prophets, it just looks like God's really mad, like really mad. But what the prophets are doing, they're covenant lawyers, if you will. They show up and they have three primary messages. Number one, you have broken covenant, O Israel, come back. Come back to God's law, calling them back to worship God. Stop just with this rampant injustice. Stop mistreating the poor. Stop worshiping other gods. Stop worshiping other idols. What what is an idol? Someone takes a piece of wood and cuts it in half and makes an idol with one and makes a fire with another. Come back to the covenant. That's the first thing they're doing. The second thing they're doing is the covenant curses are coming. They're about to be poured out on you. Remember Deuteronomy. Remember Mount Sinai. He told us what would happen if we break his covenant. No crops, our enemies will prevail. And worst of all, we will go, in a way, back to Egypt. The exodus will be undone. We will go back into exile. That's the second thing they're doing. And then there's a glorious third thing that they're doing. Come back to the covenant. The curses are coming if we continue. And the third thing they do is promise a new and better covenant that is coming. There's too many passages. I thought, you know, I'd make your notes 38 pages long, but then I decided against it. Too many passages of these new covenant promises. I'll give one here in Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenants I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out, of the, out by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband. See the relational language there. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. No longer will it be written on tablets of stone, it will now be inside your heart. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. As Israel are in rampant rebellion, killing these prophets, calling them back to the covenant, there's this glorious declaration that one day a new covenant will come. And all throughout the prophets, we see this new covenant will bring the fulfillment of all the previous covenants. It will get us back to the garden. Habakkuk Two, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. As Adam and Eve were meant to go out and spread the garden, subdue this creation with this beautiful garden that just declared the Lord's glory, that will happen in the new covenant. All the nations will be blessed. We see this Abrahamic covenant promise fulfilled. Isaiah 11.10, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, 
Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place will be glorious. All these pictures throughout the prophets of the nations streaming in to Mount Zion because they want to worship the Lord as well. The people will be holy, and they will actually obey God. We see the Mosaic covenant will be fulfilled in the New Testament. We just saw that. They'll write his laws on their hearts. Ezekiel 60, or 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, living heart. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my ways. And then lastly, this beautiful new covenant will be brought about by David's son, the promised son of David. Isaiah 9, this is what we just celebrated in Christmas time. For unto us a child is born, for to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So you see this new covenant promises is taking all the previous covenants and saying this new covenant is going to fulfill all the ones that came before that. So notice, Israel knows their Bible. There is this unbelievable anticipation for the Messiah when Jesus shows up. Why are so many coming from all around to hear John the Baptist, who, by all accounts of the descriptions of him, is this weird, crazy dude who eats bugs and is yelling in the woods because they're waiting for this new covenant to come. Why is it that Jesus is telling people, don't tell anybody about this healing that I just did? Why is it that we get these descriptions in Luke where Jesus quickly gets on the boat and goes away because they were going to make him king by force? People are waiting for this new covenant. There's this unbelievable anticipation for Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, to come. And then we see he comes. And with him, he brings about the establishment of this new covenant. He shows up as the perfect covenant keeper. He establishes the new covenant and fulfills all the old. We've seen this in Matthew over and over and over and over again. The New Testament writers want us to see more than anything else where Adam failed and where Abraham failed and where Israel failed and where David and his sons failed. Jesus succeeds He's the first character in the Bible who perfectly, beautifully, wonderfully succeeds. And don't misunderstand this. This was always the plan. God isn't just like, try this covenant. Oh, it didn't work. Try this covenant. Oh, it didn't work. I guess I'll try my son. This was always the plan. 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God find their yes and amen in him. When God's making these covenant promises all throughout the Old Testament scriptures, he knows my son will one day bring this about. Hebrews 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better 
since it is enacted on better promises. Just go read the entire book of Hebrews, and it's showing how Jesus is the answer to the entire Old Testament. So we see in his life, he's the true Adam. He's tempted by the enemy. Why is it that the Spirit leads Jesus out into the wilderness? God wants Jesus to go out into the wilderness to encounter the serpent. Why? He's going to succeed where Adam failed. The serpent tempts him with the same temptation that Adam and Eve were tempted with, and Jesus succeeds. Why do you think the Garden of Gethsemane is included in your Bible? Jesus is in a garden, faced with this task. What's the task? Obey the Father's will. No accident that he's in a garden with the exact same task Adam was given. And what does he say? Adam says, not your will, mine. I want to be like God. And what does Jesus say? Not my will, but yours. He succeeds where Adam fails. The covenant with Adam is fulfilled in him. He's the true son of Abraham, the blessing that was promised with Abraham. Why do you think Matthew starts with a giant genealogy that makes really, really sure you know Jesus is from the line of Abraham because the longing from the covenant of Abraham is realized in him. Paul says in Galatians 3.16, and the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So if you're confused, Paul says it very clearly. Promises to Abraham were about Jesus, his offspring, singular. He perfectly fulfills Abraham's covenant. He's the true and perfect Israel. The only thing I'll say about all the debates about covenants and how they fit together, the big question is, is Israel Israel or is the church Israel? And the most uh, misunderstanding with that question is Jesus is Israel. He's called out of Egypt, and Matthew makes very clear, out of Egypt I called my son. He goes through the Jordan River like Israel with his baptism. He is 40 days in the wilderness like they were in 40 years in the wilderness. He calls 12 disciples, just like Israel had 12 tribes. He perfectly keeps the law that Israel broke at the transfiguration, this weird story that we don't really know what to do with. He meets with who? Moses, who represents the law, and Elijah, who represents the prophets, and they're talking to him about his exodus. We could go on. He's the true temple, right? He's the true answer to where God and man dwell. He's the perfect priest, prophet, king. He's the perfect sacrificial lamb. He is Israel as a man. Everywhere that Israel fails, Jesus is very, very, very intentionally succeeding to show, I am keeping the Mosaic Covenant perfectly. Colossians 1, 16 through 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you, New Testament people, New Covenant people, in question of food or drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are shadows of the things to come, but the substance belong to Christ. Again, New Testament authors making it very clear for us. It's all about him. He succeeds where Israel fails, and then he's the promised son of David. Again, the genealogies, the son of David. He's called all the time the son of David. Matthew 1 starts the record of the genealogy of the Messiah, right? the promised one, the son of David. He's born in 
Bethlehem, unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Again, this king language, this Messiah language. He is the one who will sit on the throne and will never step off. And his kingdom will last forever and ever. Revelation 15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Jesus is the promise that was made to David. Everything, every covenant is pointing to him as he enacts the new covenant. So what are the elements of this new covenant? We see God comes to Jesus, who represents humanity, who represents Israel, who represents David, right? He represents all the other covenants. God makes promises. Jesus perfectly obeys the first perfect obedience that we see. He succeeds where everyone fails. And more than that, he perfectly succeeds. And then we get to the curses and the blessings. And all the covenant curses from our breaking covenant are poured out on him so that all the covenant blessing that he earns by his perfect success can be poured out on you. What is he praying in the garden for God to take away from him? Take this cup from me. This picture all throughout the Old Testament of God's wrath, the covenant curses that would be poured out on those who break God's covenant. And Jesus knows that's what I'm drinking tomorrow when I go to the cross. He takes the curses that you were meant to drink and I was meant to drink. He drinks it all so that there's nothing left for you. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And all that's left is rich covenant blessing. Paul, again, makes it very clear for us. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanging on a tree, so that in Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Paul in Ephesians 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Nothing comes to us except the covenant blessing because he took our covenant curse. It's the blessings and the curses of the new covenant. What about the covenant ratification? What is the blood of the new covenant? It's his blood. He says to his disciples, and we say this every week, Matthew 26, for this is my blood of the new covenant, or of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Why do we sing weird songs where we talk about being washed in the blood of Jesus? What a weird, like think about that for two seconds. What a weird image. I'm cleansed, I'm washed, and we're rejoicing and we're dancing in the blood of Jesus. What are we saying? Why do we say that so often? We're new covenant people. That's how we've been brought in to the new covenant. That's how it's ratified. And then we see the new covenant meal. The ceremony is the Lord's Supper. And the new covenant sign is baptism. So when we're baptizing, we're not just saying, oh, God commanded this random water thing that he told Christians to do. We want to be obedient. We're saying, look, let's welcome 
a brother who has died to himself, a sister who has died and been raised anew into the new covenant with Christ. Baptism is the sign of the new covenant. So what about us? What about the church? How are we brought into the new covenant? Okay, so notice, if Jesus is the one who fulfills all the covenant, he's the only one who's perfectly obeyed, how do we fit in there? And here's where we come to Paul's favorite phrase that you, if you actually notice it, you'll see it a billion times. That's hyperbolic. I don't know how many it actually is. A lot. Uh, The phrase, in Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. He is the perfect covenant keeper. He's the only one that has lived perfectly, and you have been united to him so that when the Father looks at you, he does not see your covenant breaking. He sees his son's perfect covenant faithfulness. How is it that the scriptures say we boldly approach the throne of grace I'm sure you're there if you're following your Bible reading plans. Israel do not boldly approach God's presence. They're terrified because he's infinitely holy and they're sinners. So how do we get to boldly approach the throne in Jesus' name? We've been united to him. Why do you think we sign off our prayers in Jesus' name? Amen. Because I'm not approaching God with my own prayers based on my own righteousness. There is none. I'm approaching God by the perfect righteousness of his son that is now mine because he's made me mine. You see that? Go trace every greeting that Paul writes to the New Testament church, and he says, blessed be the God and Father, welcome the Colossians in Christ, those who have been united to Christ. You can know You are the people of the new covenant, and the rich blessings are yours because you have been united to him. Everything that is his is now yours because the Spirit has united you to him. His father is your father. Probably the most beautiful analogy. In the same way that the eternal son calls God father, we call him father because we've been united to the perfect son. And now we live, we'll probably talk about this every week, we live in this tension age, what's called the now and not yet, or the already and not yet, where we are the people of the new covenant, but we're still awaiting the ultimate consummation of the new covenant that we'll see in Revelation 21. Sorry, you guys know, there's no clock back there, and I didn't bring my phone up, and I got this watch uh, so that I could not be rude if we're having coffee and not pull up my phone, but like glance at it, but it tells time with the hands, and I was born in the 90s, so I don't really know how to do this, so I'm like... A five. So anyway, this could be late. I don't know. I don't know how to tell time. Anyway, uh, Revelation 21. This is the beautiful picture, right, of the new covenant being realized. Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. Notice heaven and earth are joined together. Where are we back to? The garden. We're back to the garden. Everything has been renewed and remade. For the first heaven and the first earth has passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. There's an eternal covenant marriage taking place. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. 
and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. All the curses that came in from Adam are removed. No more death. Neither will there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. There's the beautiful realization of the new covenant that is not yet. There's still tears. There's still pain. There's still sin. But all you have been united to the Son and can boldly approach the Father knowing he sees you and delights in you like he delights in his Son because your life is hidden with Christ in God. So, it's a quick overview. Sorry that I'm off time-wise. I'll learn how to tell time by next week. Uh, But a couple applications uh, as before we go. I don't think we'll have time for questions. I don't know why I'm looking at my watch. I just said, I don't know how to tell time. Uh, We won't have time for questions. Email those to jared at theparkwaychurch.com, and I'll email you back. Uh, So a couple practical things. How does this change our life? And that's such a loaded question. We talked uh, two weeks ago. I said, there's, there's practical things like five steps to a better life, and those are fine. But the way the scriptures say that we are changed, we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. We need gospel glasses to be able to see the whole world clearly. And so we need here, obviously, new covenant glasses. So I just have three really practical things. When you read the Bible, read it as a new covenant believer. When you read things like Psalm 103, Psalm 103, verse 10 through 13, he does not deal with us. stomach God, the psalmist saying, he does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove the transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion on those who fear him. I read that and I think, what an amazing description of God. But I don't fear him so often. It's for those who fear him. And so automatically I think, that's not mine. Right? I fail and then... Right there, that's when you need to remember, you're a new covenant Christian. Someone did fear him perfectly on my behalf, and so I can grab these promises with both hands in Christ. You see that? You see how you can lay claim to all the glories of the Bible because Christ has perfectly obeyed. So read the Bible, not thinking about your failure, but about the son's success. Second thing, pray, boldly approach God in the name of Christ. I wake up every morning covered in shame. I I, I just think it's a reset. You remember you're a sinner when you wake up. And so when I go to pray, all I'm thinking about is my own failures. And so I have to say the phrase, Father, I come to you by the Son. And what I'm trying to get my mind and my emotions and my affections to do is align themselves with the new covenant reality he's brought me into. I don't come to God by my own works. I would burn up like the Israelites I come to him by the Son. I boldly approach the throne of grace because the curtain has been torn. You see that? Those are new covenant glasses. Have them when you read. Have them when you pray. And then a summary statement. Just have them every day of your life. 
Live in the joy of the new covenant. Live in the peace of the new covenant. If you're someone who's constantly freaking out about just the the anxieties of the world, your mind needs to be renewed to the new covenant realities. How does Paul fight his suffering? He suffers a lot, and what does he do? He takes new covenant blessing that's awaiting him, and he says, I consider the suffering of this present day not worth comparing to the glory that is to be mine. You see that? The stress, the angst of our day, yet we're supposed to have a peace that surpasses all understanding. How do we bridge that gap? You grab the new covenant truth that God says, and you force it into your heart. You never wake up on the wrong side of the bed. You're not allowed to just like mope through life just because, I don't know, I just didn't get a good night's sleep. You have the most glorious thing that could be true of anybody is true of you. There is no wrath waiting for you before a holy God. The God of the universe is your Father. Infinite joy, ever-increasing joy is waiting for you in eternity. If that's just an abstract truth, grab it and put it into your heart. Set reminders on your phone, put sticky notes on the mirror, I don't know, do something to take the glorious truths of the new covenant and make your heart long for them and love them. We see that all throughout the Psalms. Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Rise up, hope in God, right? The the psalmist, when he's having a bad day, yells at his own soul. There's glory that God has promised you. Align yourself with it. Don't be so downcast. Live as people of the new covenant. Put these new covenant glasses on every day of your life. Okay, I think the hand is past the 12, so I think I went over. I love you guys. Uh, let me pray for us. I got resources there. Again, uh, some, one, some of those are covenant overviews. A book by Tom Schreiner is a great one. It's real, real short. And then email me if you want like a blog. If you're not really a reader and you want a shorter blog, email me. I send you some good ones. And then I put there, if you really love the debates, I put some good thick books uh, on how, how do the covenants fit together and the different positions and stuff like that. But let me pray for us, and uh, we will be dismissed until 10.30. It's 10.04. Okay, thank you. Father, we love you. Please open the eyes of our hearts to the unthinkable riches of the new covenant that were purchased for us, not by our wallets, not by our works, but by the blood of your Son. And we have dwelling within us your Spirit as a seal and a guarantee that we have nothing but glory waiting for us where we will see you face to face and the dwelling place of God will be with man. I pray that you change our hearts. This is a difficult world. It's a broken world. It's a painful world. All who trust in your Son will be persecuted and hated, but I pray that our roots go deep and drink in the truth of the new covenant and the truth of the scriptures that we might bear fruit in every season, our plant wouldn't wither, and that we would flourish even in the midst of the darkest pain. We could say with Paul, I don't consider the sufferings of this present time worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed because of what your glorious son has done for us, making us his own. We pray in the name of your son. Amen.